the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 29, Halloween 2019. Hello boys and girls and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton and we are joined by our new mascot. Spath the Silurian. Say hello Spath. This is our Halloween special and we're going to kick it off with the surviving episode of The Abominable Snowman, the Doctor Who story from 1967. And then we're going to crack on with the Hammer horror film The Abominable Snowman which is a fairly faithful remake of the missing Nigel Neal play The Creature Before we do any of that as ever we it's time to-, to get out the tonic screwdriver and get the top off the gin Simon, what have we got for tonight? Today we are drinking Nelson's London Dry Gin number 7 and this is it apparently infuses 27 fine and pleasing organic botanicals from across the globe, such as lemongrass and kaffir lime from Thailand, vanilla from Madagascar and cinnamon from Sri Lanka. And the water comes from a reed bed that filters naturally through before passing a reverse osmosis filter system. We need to study it. The first thing that you know, it hits smacks you. It this does. is full I mean, of flavour. Um, those, those botanics, there's nothing particularly earth-shattering or unusual mm. about them. However, the way they're blended is lovely. That's really quite something, actually. It is a bit of a kick to the hind. Yeah. Part. My initial thought was, that's five-worthy. The only thing putting me off, there's a bit of an aftertaste which lingers, and it's a little sharp it's just knocking it down into four territory for me but well, if you citrusy flavor yeah you see i think that's nice it's it's almost orange peel that's left behind i do like it it's i'm, I'm torn yeah it just nudges it down into four territory for me but it's a bloody good one mm. I, I think this is lovely it's it's four for me as well but a good solid yeah four. it is I can recommend that. If you want a gin that tastes of something, that is... Yeah it's, yeah. it's nice, it's sharp, it's got a bit of cloud in the glass, it hits you behind between the eyeballs. Very happy with that. Splendid. Well, bring your glass. It's time to descend into the undercellar of Podcasting House and open the Black Archive. This is where we pick out pieces of lost television, film and radio and return them to the public at large. Usually we do go with the theme. So Simon, what are you picking out today? Oh, nothing to do with the theme whatsoever. Well, very vaguely. My choice for the Black Archive is Arrow to the Heart. Which is? Which is an early BBC TV play, um, originally staged in 1952, then again in 1956, um, based on a German novel published in 1950. And it's basically a two-hander set over one night on the German Eastern Front. And there is a, a pastor who is there to oversee the execution of a deserter. 
in conversation with a German military officer who's about to be sent to the Battle of Stalingrad, which is basically a death sentence. And over over the course of their conversation, Pastor realises that the person whose execution he's come to oversee is actually innocent, um, but isn't able to do anything to stop that execution. And the German officer gets basically a stay of execution because the Battle of Stalingrad is lost before he he has to go there. So it's not cheery. No, it doesn't sound it very much. And the reason I've chosen it, and actually the reason it kind of ties in with uh, the second thing we're going to be watching tonight, is it was the very first piece of television that Nigel Neal wrote. Yeah, Nigel Neal's got a running theme through our podcast. Excellent and miserable. They're not bad attributes. So that's my choice. What, What do you fancy dragging out of the Black Archive? Mine is actually... Again, it's not really connected with the theme at all. Uh, this uh, this is um, a series called Compact, which was a soap opera in the 1960s. And it was a BBC thing between 1962 and 65. And it was deliberately scheduled so as not to clash with Coronation Street. Now, I don't know to write a lot about it, but it was... It's the one set in the magazine, isn't it? Yes, that's yeah. the one. No surviving episodes from what I'm... If there are, then... Or is it United that um, there's no surviving episodes? I can't find any evidence of any of them existing. But it was... Um, what is the same because his teeth on that? who was the first director of Doctor Who back in 1963. And it's just one of those slices of TV history I think it would be nice to see. So um, nothing particularly in-depth or analytical about my appraisal of that, but it's, I think, it's one of those things that was described as a kitchen sink drama. Um, It's not a phrase that's used very, very much anymore. Right, so we're now back in the viewing room. The big screen is in front of us, queued up ready with The Abominable Snowman. Episode 2, I think this yeah, is, isn't it? See, Spaff's terribly excited. He is, jumping up and down next to us. Uh, Spaff, go on, would, would you like to uh, press play? You will now provide power to operate the machinery. Right, now we're doing this a little bit um, the other way around. Uh, we're watching the special features on the DVD Lost in Time, the surviving clips and the location footage. And there's scant bits of it, some film inserts of the Yeti on a mountainside, and location footage courtesy of the estate of Gerald Blake, which is in colour. Yeah, see, I, I didn't remember there being a huge amount of surviving clips above and beyond episode two although the, the close-ups of the yetis from episode four that we show that we've just seen do make it obvious that they were redesigned in between this and the, the abominable snow very and, definitely uh, yeah fear. see i much prefer the web of fear version i think there's a um, there's just a better design all around it's filmed at a weird angle that makes them look like they're leaning over when in actual fact they stood up this isn't wildly exciting not really it kind of looks like a picnic with lots of people smoking and somebody in a big yellow hat. I have a feeling and this is all Boris Johnson for some reason. It does look like Boris Johnson. Oh, it's oh, a woman. She's a woman who just horrifically upset, um, insulted somebody. Mind you, frankly, whoever it is, who said they look like Boris Johnson. That's a fairly horrific insult. And whoever it was was being accosted by Patrick Troughton. Oh, hello. That fur coat really looks ratty, doesn't it? It does actually. Good grief! He doesn't know how to tuck. This is the second time in the podcast you have mentioned tucking badly. First being Outcast. Outcast, Outland. Outland. Do you know, look yeah, at this more a recognition size. that Fraser Hines has apparently nothing to be ashamed of. Um, <laughs> is that a lamp? Wind machine. Oh. 
So Patrick Troughton, pictured there with his own camera, clearly took stills. They existed somewhere. God, those are brand new costumes of the Yeti, and they looked at it already. (laughs) Looking at that, I can't help help but think of Terry and Wang Wang. No, you're going to have to narrow that one down. We'll do Who Dares Wins at some point. I loved, absolutely loved (laughs) Who Dares Wins. It was a sketch show from the 80s with Rory McGrath, Philip Pope, Tony Robinson, Julia Hill, Jimmy Mulville. It's where they all... It, it's basically where Hattrick production started. Right. It's very, very 80s. It's absolutely hilarious. And they had two filthy ma- filthy mouthed pandas called Terry and Wang Wang. Again, a running theme with you. What, pandas? No, just filthy mouthed. Well, that was the surviving clips, which wasn't much, and the location film... Which wasn't all that. So, should we actually play the episode proper? Yes, it kind of set the scene a little bit. Do you know, also on this, there's the documentary The Missing Years, with the the famous There Will Always Be 109 Missing Episodes of Doctor Who. God bless Ian Levine for his ridiculous predictions. Well, I think before they... the thing was shown there was then a 108 I can't remember what they the one that proved him wrong was oh oh Debbie Watling she looks so young she was really quite bonny in those days before the uh, the love of drink took its toll you mentioned the Missing Years documentary. It is a, it's an interesting documentary, actually, but Debbie Watling is off her face for the entire length of it. Really nice picture quality. Mm, it is. They've done a good clean-up on this. And terrible polystyrene rocks. Hey, it's interesting seeing how Jamie reacts to each of the um, other companions that he's with. Mm. Because he's... Ben and Polly, he's fairly ambivalent to to Polly and a bit antagonistic towards, towards ben. ben. certainly. With Victoria, he's very, very protective. And by the time he gets to Zoe, it's pretty much a sort of equal with her ripping the piss out of him every so often. Yeah. So now we have David Spencer, who is Mr. Victor Pemberton. Well, he was Victor Pemberton's other half. Yeah, they were together for years and years and years. I didn't know that. You know, I've never noticed that. Just on the picture quality, there's a very nasty black streak down and a bit of sparkle on this, which it's not done to the usual restoration team standard. What's going on here? I think he was half Sri Lankan, David Spencer. He's in a dreadful, dreadful sci-fi thing called And the Earth Dies Screaming. What's that about? Alien robots turning people into zombies. Yeah, it doesn't sound very good. It's one of those, it's so bad it's entertaining. That's almost a bagpuss. I just... What is this thing that I bring? It's a giant gold dildo. Have you ever actually seen what a dildo looks like? Because it ain't that. It's got a bend in it. Well, that's a nice set. It is, actually. I'll show you some, we'll show you some pictures later. It can go on your search history. The monastery is a really nice set. It is, it? actually. And they recreate it quite nicely in downtime. Yeah, but... I've ne- I'm ashamed to say I've never seen downtime. I've never been able to sit through it. 
Really? Yeah, the bits and pieces of it that I've seen were a bit... It's like all those fan films from the 90s. They meant well, but they were all done on... Downtown's quite fun. Um, And it's got Sarah Jane, and it's got the Brigadier, and it's got Victoria. And Professor Travers, is is he in that? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I'm reminded of Mr. Claypole. (laughs) No, he he turned up in the next series (laughs) with far, far sillier facial hair. Well, those side moustaches have tried to drag his bottom lip into another time zone. And from having seen a number of Tibetan and Nepali temples, and okay, predominantly the Hindu ones rather than the Buddhist ones, what this is missing is really, really filthy murals. (laughs) One temple I, I just happened to randomly come across while I was wandering around Kathmandu was the tortoise temple and okay. the, the, all the animal temples they have they generally have the animals wandering around and it was just absolutely packed full of um, of tortoises and the filthiest filthiest carvings you could possibly imagine you know he sounds like Tom Baker it's all a bit whispery like wo- like Votan, isn't it? Tom, mm. it might be a little bit... It might be quite sensible if you were a little bit afraid. <coughs> Do you know, I haven't listened to the audio of the Abominable Snowman in years. I, I really must search it out. No, I must admit, I've not heard it myself either. It's up there. I've got all the missing episodes. Of all the Doctor Who releases, those are the ones that excited me the most. Those CDs were really well done. Yes, and kind of the modern version is the animations. True, yes. We'll have to do the faceless ones when that comes Absolutely. out. Absolutely. An awful lot of grass on that Tibetan hillside. It's almost like it was in Wales. Well, not all of Tibet is mountainous and desolate. This is supposed to be set on the top, on the top of a hill. You see, the, this is Jamie at his most protective because when Ben and Polly were around or when Zoe was around, he would have just, right, let's go off and find the excitement. But Victoria, he was always really protective of. Um, and so sort of early stories, it's... It's almost recognising vulnerability, and because, probably because he sees that she loses her, she loses her only family mm. and her only connection while he's around, and then later on because he's knocking her off. Yes, you are quite convinced of this. We'll watch the Ice Warriors at some point. That whole sequence where um, they're in the Britannica base to to start with, and they're playing about on the the massage chair, and um, he, he sees. One of the technicians walked past and says to Victoria, oh, would you, would you ever think about wearing something like that? And the only time you ever see Jamie really upset is when Victoria leaves. It's the only time in the entire run. I only heard Fury from the Deep all the way through recently for the first time. And you call yourself a fan. I know, I know. I wasn't that blown away, incredibly. It's fairly light on plot. I've never quite understood why it's such um, 
an enormous fan favourite. I can only assume that it's because the the soundtrack conjures up magnificent sounding sets. Um, so why has that suddenly gone to That's poor pitch quality? Barbara Bain. Barbara Bain, the personal <laughs> fog machine. <laughs> His hat's cockeyed, isn't it? Oh, that's because he's being seen through cloth. Yeah. Well, he's already pretty much got his hand out. Okay, you're so. almost there. Go on, wrestle a bit harder. Especially since he's supposed to have studied with Harry Houdini. Has he by this point? Was he not in his Pertwee incarnation when he was supposed to have done that? Yeah, I mean, Pertwee banged on about it, but how would Pertwee at that point have got to see Harry Houdini? Because he didn't have a time machine. So it has to have been done in an early incarnation. Did he only first mention it in uh, Planet of the Spiders? No, Carnival of Monsters, I think. No. And if all goes well, I will have my own silly hat. Because there's a variety of silly hats in this. Well, he's ditched the stovepipe by this point. No, I was thinking about Tomney. <laughs> you see, clearly, the sillier the hat, the more senior you are within the monastery. Because his one's a bit like a smurf with sideburns. But then when you get to be Abbot, you get the full rooster. You do, yes. The full lopsided rooster. There we go. With a muslin cloak, for some reason. Very good for straining rice wine. I, I assume it's supposed to be a... Um, a prayer shawl but they're nowhere near as wide as that I've still got my prayer shawl that I was um, given when I uh, first went to work in Nepal you wore a sky daddy cloak oh, a, a prayer shawl yeah I've got the coffee hat as well well the doctor's wearing a rather fetching sash of some sort it's like a scarf with hemp leaves on it. And little mirrory things. I mean, it, it, it's very 60s hippie, but mm. I have to be on outside the very touristy bits of Kathmandu. I can't remember seeing anything like that while I was, while I was there. Pokhara as well, but oh. The cuddliest monsters they are. Suffering from obesity. It did sound like he was calling Polly, didn't it? Yes. Victoria, I do like this bit. Jimmy has an idea. Let's run away. Is it more silly hats? Who has a suspiciously Welsh accent? Even though I've just barged into your private meeting. There is one coming. I wonder Yeah, the Weber Fear ones are, are much They're much better than these. Come by, here he comes. Now! really clobbering that fellow in the uh, Yeti costume. Not sparing him any. Well, he's under about half a ton of padding. Yeah, that's been knocked out of a long way. Mm. And suddenly buried for some reason. Oh, we should do the Web of Fear at some point. They must have been so pissed off that three went missing as soon as they'd found it. 
having said that, it's gone from one fantastic episode and five missing episodes to five fantastic episodes and one missing episode. True. Fretting about episode three, yeah. I'd love to see episode three, but I can now see four more episodes than I could five years ago. Or possibly even more, I can't remember when, when they came back. I mean, I know I was in Greece at the time that it was announced because I didn't hear about it for a, a good 10 days or so. Oh, grief. Well, I, I didn't watch the, watch the news. Alan had heard about it and just thought, oh, well, it's only a couple of episodes. It's not that important. I wouldn't bother telling him. We had words. Yeah. <laughs> That effect is actually very nicely done of the the control sphere travelling along on its own. That was the, that was really entertaining. Mm. I, Abominable Snowman is one of those um, one of those stories that I watch and just get really sad that we don't have the rest of it. Anyway, there are some missing episodes that I watch and I'm not so sad that we don't have the rest of it, so... Would Space Pirates be one of those? Celestial Toymaker? Celestial Toymaker, certainly. I'd like to see the rest of Space Pirates. I suspect as it goes on, it becomes much more entertaining. I've never been that down on the Space Pirates. I've mentioned this before. I asked Mark Ayres at a convention many years ago what his least favourite was. And he said Space Pirates. It bored him to tears. And uh, I've never been that way about the soundtrack. I think, all right, as as stories go, it's not exactly the most fast-paced and they're not particularly exciting. But as set pieces, I don't think they're bad at all. I think it's one one of those things where the surviving episode is probably one of the least interesting episodes. And Enemy of the World was like that. Um, episode three isn't the greatest episode in what is actually a very good story. Mm. Now, I, I have a bit of an issue with the end of it, the, the final couple of episodes of Enemy of the World, not because of the story, but because of the um, the set of the of Salamander's underground base is just so sparse looking. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly generic office and a couple of flats, and and that's about it. And possibly because I my exposure to it was reading the um the target novelization and it was an Ian Martyr, so it was a little bit more in depth than the the normal um Terence Dix pamphlets that you got. That's not to say they weren't very well written pamphlets, but they were <laughs> they were fairly sparse in, in places, whereas Enemy of the World was when later on in the run Target were, were sort of recognising that they had a dedicated readership and it wasn't just pamphlet of the month. Well, it, it And so, you, so you've got Ian Martyr writing stuff, yeah. you've got Nigel Robinson writing writing stuff. You've got Terence Dix actually being given a little more space to to write things properly rather than just, there you go, there's Image of the Fendal, we want 100 pages in a fortnight and <laughs> don't worry too much about the details. So anyway, that was that's the first bit of our Halloween special. We are now and moving. Have out. we done the drag queen index? We haven't. Siri, I am Persian. Name your price. 
sorry to disappoint you, Siri, but there's pretty much nothing here. Really? Even the big flamboyant shoulders and the silly hats? Um, Does that not count? Not really. That's more fancy dress than drag queen. Oh, I'm not really getting the hang of this, am I? Right. The big big flamboyant shoulders with the tinsel edging and the the silly cockatoo hat. Um, (laughs) It's not really looking like a woman, is it? No. It's just looking like a bit of a tit. Yeah, granted. Yeah. And the only woman in the entire story is Victoria. Who looks quite sensible. Who is dressed up in hiking gear. And she's supposed to be roof of the world thing. So you can understand why she's bundled up a bit. But it's not the sort of thing that any self-respect and drag queen would try and emulate. So I'm afraid I think it's a one out of five. It's a one out of five. So what are we moving on to next? What we are moving on to next is the... Hammer film version of the Nigel Neal play The Creature. It was originally a um, a BBC play and it was put out as live. It was uh, repeated as live. It was never recorded. And it, it was, an, uh, I think, a 90-minute feature that has been fairly faithfully remade um, from the original script with the majority of the original cast as the film The Abominable Snowman. Splendid. Well, um, so effectively we're watching a, a Nigel Neal missing episode. Just done with film budgets. When was this made? Can't remember. Let's find out. Ron VT. A small band of men on a perilous search for the man beast of Tibet. The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. You've heard of him, haven't you? The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him. Be on your guard. He's coming to this theater. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you. Dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. What did it look like? Tell me, what did you see, Kusang? Tell me. I see, I see what, what men must not see. They're after me. They know it was me that did it last night. They're after me. They're after all of us. They just killed McNeil. Why said that? It was an accident. It's me next. They know it was me. Stay here. Wait. Ed, I can hear you. You've got to understand that isn't Shelley. It isn't anybody. I can hear his voice. It's in your own mind. It's just happened to me too. Warning. Only those with stout nerves and strong hearts should risk seeing the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. Right, well, that was The Abominable Snowman, a Hammer film, the third, I believe, in their series. The third that was based on a Nigel Neal script. So they'd done um, Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2 before these. And this, again, was based on a, a Neal and Cartier production for the BBC. This time around, they were adapting a single play. So there was a 90-minute script that was made into a 90-minute film. So was very, there wasn't as much hmm. trimming as was needed for the two Quatermass series. Because yeah. it, 
each of those was three, six 30-minute episodes trimmed down to a 90-minute film. This was a 90-minute TV play where some of the some of the more talky bits were trimmed down so that you could get the more cinematographic bits of the um, the film because there was a lot of ex- uh, outside filming in the, in the Pyrenees, which looked fantastic. It did, actually. Um, before we drift on to uh, sort of breaking the film down, do you want to give us a preview of what it's about and when it was made? Yeah, it was made in 1957. The original BBC production was 1955, uh, put out as live and never recorded. The basic plot is about an expedition to try and find the abominable snowman. And they start off with Peter Cushing playing a, a botanist who is on expedition in... I don't think it's actually said whether it's Nepal or Tibet. It's implied that it's Tibet, but I don't think it's ever actually... Yeah, um, yeah. They, they just say the Himalayas. Mm. And he is at a monastery with his wife and his research assistant. And they're, get, they're getting ready to pack up. They've done their, all their research on that. On, they're looking at edible plants. And the second expedition turns up led by Tom Friend, who's an American who is in search of the abominable snowman, the Yeti. Peter Cushing is a very experienced climber and has been arguing for the existence of the Yeti for years, so can't really pass up the opportunity to go on this expedition, even though his wife asked him several times not to. So Peter Cushing, Tom Friend, uh, Peter Cushing's character, John Ralston, and Tom Friend head off further up the mountain. Tom Friend and his colleague, Shelley, um, who turns out to be an expert trapper, and the, the final members of the expedition are a photographer called McNee, who's very nervy and it turns out has paid to come on the expedition. And a local guide called... Uh, Chris, not Chris Song. Yeah, I keep wanting to say Chris Song after mm-hmm. uh, seeing the Doctor Who. Yes. So they disappear up, up on this expedition. And they're go, going rather than in the height of summer when... We, where they're going would be easy. They're going in the, the depths of winter. And the reason that they plan to do that is because any snowmen that are living way up in the, um, in the snows will come further down the mountain in the winter in search of food. So Tom Friend thinks that's his best chance of finding them. And he was there the previous summer and has cached, cached supplies so that they're not going to be carrying their own food and tents and uh, everything that they need up the mountain. It's all up there waiting for them. So they head off, make camp in a, a little hut that he, he set up. And they're already starting to be affected by whatever's going on. There's there's arguments, there's tension between all the members of the group. And during this, their radio gets smashed, so they can't find out weather forecasts or anything. Go further on up the mountain, they split into two groups, Tom Friend and Shelley and... Kusang head on ahead to prepare the camp, whereas um, Ralston and McNee hang behind to take uh, to get samples of uh, the plants that Peter Cushing's actually come to study. When the two of them get to the top of the mountain, they don't realise that Shelley has laid traps for the abominable snowman, and McNee gets caught in a um, in an animal trap and severely damages his foot. He's not really able to move. They've, they've established a, a camp by a series of caves. And so they set up, set up there. Peter Cushing bandages this fellow's foot and basically says he should be in a hospital. It comes about at that point that Tom Friend is not just looking to find the abominable snowman. He wants to take a specimen back and ideally a live specimen. They hear noises in the camp 
everybody but McNee runs out to see what's what's going on, and then Kusang is Kusang <laughs> is sent back to the, the tent to pick up the rifles. Gets into the tent and sees a, a massive hand um, reaching under the, the tent flap to grab the rifles, and McNee is st- staring in a trance at this hand. Kusang is absolutely terrified by this and runs out of the camp and heads down the mountain and goes back to the, um, the monastery. And McNee is so affected that he stumbles off further up the mountain, loses his footing and uh, falls down, hits some rocks and dies. Just after that, while Friend and Ralston are finding McNee's body, they hear shots from the camp and Shelley has shot and killed uh, one of the abominable snowmen. So they, they, they find the body, they've got proof positive that this is a real thing. But Friend wants to take back a, a genuine specimen. Now they say that this is 10 foot tall and 600 pounds. 650 pounds. So quite how he's planning to get the, get a, a live one that you assume not going to be particularly happy about going um, down the mountain. They think they're going to struggle with the, the dead one that they've got. But he decides he wants a live one. So got, they set up inside the cave a trap with Shelley as bait. And Rolleston and Friend wait in their, in their tent to sort of come in and spring the, the trap. A blizzard hits, so the visibility goes down to almost nothing. Shelley starts firing, starts screaming. When they get to the trap, they see that the uh, the extra strong steel mesh that he he had has been ripped apart, and he's dead. They conclude that he's he's died of fright. At this point, a friend realizes there's no point trying to find trying to get one of these live things. He's going to cut his losses. He's going to take the body down the mountain, but they need to survive the night. So they barricade themselves into this cave. And their minds start playing trick, tricks on them. Um, Rolleston hears the radio warning them to um, to escape and get down the mountain and then realises that the radio had, has already been smashed. Friend hears Shelley calling for him to help, even though he knows that Shelley's dead. Rolleston's able to control himself. Friend isn't and runs out into the, um, the main area of the camp with his gun firing away and triggers an avalanche, which kills him. While all of this is going on, Rolleston's wife has got so worried about what's going on. She's seen uh, Kusang come back to the camp looking terrified. So employs another group of uh, bearers to take her and Fox up the mountain. And they get to the first hut, which was the supply station for the, the first expedition. While they're there, she hears something happening out in the blizzard, goes out to try and find it and, fi- uh, and finds her husband looking shocked and unresponsive. She and Fox guide him back to that hut and as they, they take take Rolleston away you see a massive footprint in the in the snow so it's implied that the the yeti have brought uh, Rolleston back to safety back to where his um, colleagues can find him and you have to assume that they're helping him because of the three people that got got to the upper camp he's the only one that doesn't bear any ill will towards the, the Yeti's um, friend and Shelley were there to either hunt them or exploit them. Whereas Rolleston realises that actually they're intelligent and they, rather than sitting up there waiting as an evolutionary blind alley to um, the end of their time, they're just waiting for man to completely bugger things up and they can come and take <laughs> over take over as the, the next stage of evolution, uh, not human evolution, but primate evolution. So uh, Dr. and Mrs. Rolleston and Fox go back down to the, um, the monastery and the final scene is one with the abbot who is saying, oh, you've had, such a, you've had a terrible time. You've lost your um, colleagues in these terrible accidents. 
And Rolleston just says, yes, I, I, but it, it has proved to me once and for all that there are no Yeti. Now, whether that's him having seen the Yeti, because uh, while he's up at the top of the mountain, he does come face to face with two live Yeti. Mm. And whether that's him recognising that to say anything would mean that there would be other better equipped expeditions and the Yeti wouldn't stand a chance and he's, for their sake, not saying anything. Or we already know that they can affect people mentally. Have they wiped his memory so he genuinely believes there's nothing? And that's not clear. No, it's an they, uh, The film finishes at that point. For a Hammer film, it's very ungory. Yes. Um, the deaths that you see... A very sanitised. So McNee falls off a mountain and you don't see the body that's behind a, a rock. The, the Yeti that's been shot, the body is always out of um, screenshot. I think that was a deliberate thing from um, Val Guest, mm. not wanting to show that um, the full Yeti thing. And in, in the end, all you see is a silhouette and the, and the eyes. You don't... No, you never see... Uh, which is a good thing. Well, apparently Nigel Neal wanted the full thing seen. Right. Um, and it was Val Guest said no. Um, and he wanted it much more hidden than this and just wanted sort of hands and silhouettes and things. Mm. And they compromised between the two of them. And the, the other deaths, um, Tom Friend, you just see an avalanche overlaid over a picture of him. And Shelley doesn't have a mark on him. So that it's very, very sanitised. And it actually got an A certificate rather yeah. than an X certificate that, uh, that Hammer tended to go for. And it, it's really quite a, a thoughtful script. I liked it. It's very clever. It starts off looking like a, a monster hunt. And in the end, the people who are acting like monsters are the, um, the human hunters. Mm. They shoot somebody down. Or, or they, they shoot a, a yeti down. That looks as though it's just coming to inve- investigate what was going on mm. with these people who'd come into, into its territory. And at no point do they make any aggressive act. Coming into the camp is interpreted as, as aggression. But they, don't, they, don't, they never attack anybody. The mental effects that they have on um, Ralston and Friend aren't aggressive. Mm. They're just encouraging them to to leave. Films of this era, they all it's a quite a fun game to play. Spot the stiff. Now you've seen this before. Yeah. The only one I was unsure about was the American they dropped in to replace. Uh, was it somebody Forrest? I've never heard of before. But he Forrest was Tucker. Forrest Tucker. Uh, Stanley Baker in the original. Many of the other actors from the original um, BBC production carry through into this. Peter Cushing was the lead in the in the BBC one. Peter Cushing's the lead in this. Wolf Morris reprises his, his part. Uh, the characters of Mrs. Rolleston and Fox are creations for the film and didn't appear in the original. It's fairly sure who's going to get picked off. Anyone nervy, you're going to die. Really? Oh, because yes. Because you made two predictions. Um, as, oh, I said one of them was going to get eaten and he died of shock. No, you but said... he still died. You said that the photographer... The two predictions you made was that the photographer and the guide were going to be goners. And you're only half right. Oh, that you smug as fuck about that. <laughs> if you could see your smug face. Uh, yes, that is true. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm being given the bird. Yeah, but I, th- I didn't know whether the American, because again, as you've pointed out before we even started this, hmm. Americans are often dropped in yeah. to make it more saleable abroad. Hammer, Hammer deliberately did, did this. Um, you'll see this again when we come on and do the um, the Quatermass films. Hmm. Uh, because Steve McQueen, everybody, Steve McQueen in The Great Escape dropped in. 
just a, a wonderful film. It didn't really need Steve McQueen. Everybody else, you know, they're, they're fashion uniforms to escape and passports. Steve McQueen's there in jeans and a T-shirt and a Harley and a leather jacket and a fag hanging out of his mouth. Whereas everyone else is very British and... Uh, yeah, so there's, there's an awful lot of RP. There is, but it's, it's nobody, nobody so far has beaten Paula. Paula. One suspects that nobody here was married to the casting director. <laughs> oh, I've got to dig it out. There's a wonderful quote on Wikipedia. I have sent it to you before. Yes, because clearly we're not accusing the BBC of nepotism and it's presumably a massive coincidence that Monica Gray, when she got the, uh, the job of uh, Paula Quatermass, was married to the um, BBC head of drama. Pure coincidence. I'm sure, sure that played no part whatsoever in the casting decision for an actress that dreadful. And then to go on and become one of the um, founding cast members of The Archer. She was, she was the original Grace Archer. But there was a review when Quatermass 2, this was on the BBC's own website, mm. When it first came out on DVD, and uh, it, it says about Monica Gray, uh, she's not so much an actress, more a finishing school on legs. <laughs> <laughs> well, she provides a useful telephone answering service. She does, and even in the very worst excesses of Harry Enfield's Chumley Warner, nobody has been that happy ever, 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 ever. But no, this film, I, I'm really quite surprised, considering this is late 50s, what, mid to late 50s. That stands up really well. Yeah. The film print's in great condition. It's a good story. Cinematography's Oh, it is really well done. Beautiful. Yeah, it's well and directed. And the sets, the, the, um, the monastery sets are amazing. We were, And we were talking in the mm. previous section about how good the, the Doctor, Doctor Who. Who Abominable Snowman sets were. The blasted out of the water. It's yeah. not quite up at Black Narcissus level, but it's not very far off. No. There's some of the sets were reused for the um, Christopher Lee Fu Manchu films later on. Well, the uh, some of the shots that they did, particularly the one where Tom Friend's about to get killed by an avalanche, they did this wonderful pan down as he's pan, his face pans up to look at his own impending death with just resignation. That shot's bloody marvellous. Yeah, and, and the, kind of his face is a real oh fuck moment. Yeah. And he's actually, he'd kind of blustered his way through. Mm. Uh, and I think it was Nigel Neal who said, Forrest Tucker is very good at an awful lot of things and unfortunately acting isn't one of them. Um, and for most of the film, that's probably quite true. However, that last bit, that last mm. bit was really good. And I suspect Nigel Neal was a little bit soured by the fact that his two previous scripts for Hammer had Brian Donlevy in the role of Quatermass. He's the only person to have played Quatermass twice. Yes. And he was an American that was crowbarred in whose portrayal Nigel Neal hated. Um, and I don't think you'll be world keen when we come to watch it. He's, no. That's, uh, that's less on the list for this recording block. He's so. no Reginald Tate. He's not even Reginald... Oh, dear. I thought you were going to say Andre Morel. Oh, God, I mean... Nobody's Andre Morel. Actually, to be fair, when we come on to the film of Quatermass in the Pit, he's replaced by Andrew, Andrew Keir, Keir, who does a good job. Mm. Um, I mean, my, I am with the fan majority. My favourite Quatermass is uh, Andre, Andre Morel. Morel. He is. Oh, he's brilliant. Although I have to be honest, John Mills does a really good job. It's a very, very different style of story. Yeah, it's, it's a different style of story. And Quatermass is clearly knocking on a bit by then. Not segueing at all here, but we'll come on. The Quatermass 4, 
which is we've already recorded that, and that's uh, imminent. It's a treat yet to come. It is. So we'll, we'll I'll, I'll stop there, and we'll come on to that. But um, with regards to abominable snowman, why it's not a singular and not plural, I don't know, because they're quite clearly plural in this film. But that was very watchable. It's got Peter Cushing. Uh, really, anything with Peter Cushing, you're on solid ground. It's sort of yeah. Anthony Hopkins. You know, you can. It doesn't really matter if he's in it. You can watch it. And it's not your classic horror, uh, classic hammer horror, whatever monster they're they're doing at that time, and, and all fairly formulaic and, and almost play it by numbers. They, this was a, a film that gets you thinking. It's worth your time, boys and girls. And actually the whole, the real monsters are the people in it, very much echoes the way Nigel Neal's Beast plays are in yes, the 70s. Yeah. And I know we've only done one of those mm. so far, but I want to do the rest. This was one you always mentioned. During Barty's party. That's the one. Yeah. Mind you, I, one of the ones I, I was least keen on when I, um, when I saw the series was The Dummy. Which I loved. Which... When we did, our, um, it was an in memoriam for mm. Clive Swift, wasn't it? And when we did that, it was, it's brilliant. Yeah. And it just goes to show that even comparatively weak Nigel Neal is still bloody good telly. But you've got a story about somebody's knickers, is that right? Jimmy Stewart's knickers, yes. There, there's an interesting slash disturbing story um, that's a true story from around about this era. And there was a Nepalese monastery, I can't remember the name of it, but who had what was purported to be a relic yeti hand. And there was an um, American businessman, I think, who want, who was very curious about this and wanted it to be DNA tested. And the, Nep- the, uh, the monastery said, no, this, this is our relic. It's important to us. We don't want you taking it away for um, scientific experimentation. We don't want you taking samples of it, we refused permission. And this American bloke wasn't prepared to accept this, so sent somebody into the, um, the monastery who snuck in, unwrapped the, um, the relic, took some bone samples out and replaced with ordinary bones from somewhere or other, smuggled them from Nepal into India, and they were smuggled from India back to the United States in the luggage of the actor Jimmy Stewart, who was filming in India at the time. And it turned out that they were initially said to be human and then on further examination was felt to be um, something more like a, something closer to, ne- to a Neanderthal. So, so not any missing species or anything like that. So, um, there was an American documentary in the early 2000s that talked about this hand and very soon after that was transmitted, the hand itself was stolen from the, from the monastery and presumably ended up in somebody's collection somewhere. Oh, this it was given a special name, this hand, wasn't it? It was the name of the monastery, yeah. and my head is stuck in on Rinpoche, which... That's is, exactly the name, but it's not... It, it isn't. I'm, I'm sure, I think it begins with a P, um, but I, I can't remember the, the name of it. I'm, I'm sure somebody wider read than me will be able to let us know. Or, and it's just an interesting little anecdote, and also demonstrates quite the level of entitlement that some people feel they have. That's true where this is a religious artefact and the custodians of that artefact have said, no, we don't want you to do anything to it. And people have just come along and said, well, do you know what? Actually, we don't care what you think and we're just going to take it anyway. Now, if you were to do that to, say, the crown of thorns that was in um, oh, yeah, the, uh, yeah. uh, Notre Dame, there would be an enormous hue and cry 
Wasn't the Turin Shroud nicked at some point? I think most things have been nicked yeah. sometimes over the, over the century. The Turin Shroud was um, scientifically examined, but it was scientifically examined with the agreement and permission of the Vatican, who were the custodians of it at the time. So that's a very different situation to, like if the, uh, the Vatican had said, no, we don't want you to do anything to it, and then somebody just breezed in, chopped a chunk of it off and um, <laughs> and said, well, okay, go have listened to what you said, but fuck you, I don't care. Um, which, is, which is what this is. What this is. It is basically, it's no yeah. different. I bet the, uh, the programme makers must have felt a bit guilty that they'd caused this artefact to be nicked. You think? You'd like to think the conscience pricked a little. I, I think you have a rosier view of humanity than I have then. I, I suspect there was a big chunk of this is a piece of crap uh, a million miles away, but it's now news, so our documentary is going to get more views. We should mention... You have met people who work in media. I'm afraid I have, right. yes. Maybe we should mention a religious artefact somewhere so that we get more listeners when it's nicked. The Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch. Ah, oh, count to three. Not two, not four. Five is right out. Three shall be the number. <laughs> Um, although the actual prop of the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch, I think, is about to go under auction. In, really? It still exists? Yeah. And I, I, I think it's, it's going to be auctioned. Five years old? 74, 75? And with that, we shall sign off. Wish you a happy Halloween. Go out trick-or-treating. I hope you get lots of sweeties. And we shall see you in a fortnight with our next podcast. Whatever that turns out to be. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.